This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studios today is Jim Lucan, who is Associate Dean and Professor of Biology at Coastal Carolina University. And his specialty is plant ecology and botany. And he has written a new book entitled Coastal South Carolina Fish and Game, Culture, History, and Conservation. With that introduction, Jim, welcome to the journal. Thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy listening to your show. Well, I appreciate that. And so let's talk a few minutes about Jim Lucan. Who are you? Where'd you come from? How'd you get involved with what you're doing? Well, um, I was born and raised on a farm in central Illinois. And um, as with uh, many biologists, um, I was really no different than many of them. Many of them, when they're young, are infatuated with being outdoors, with wildlife, with fishing and hunting. And, uh, and that, was, that was me to a T. Um, if I read anything, I usually read outdoor life or field and stream mm-hmm. or, uh, or sp- spent a lot of time perusing through the herder's catalog. And I don't know if you're familiar with the herder's catalog, but it was a, it was a sporting goods catalog. And they had these wonderful descriptions of all this sporting goods. I just loved paging through the thing. Um, the problem was, of course, if you've ever been to central Illinois, it's, it's not a good place if you're a biologist because there's not much biology there. There's, there's basically two shades of green, and it's corn and soybeans. And so, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time wishing I could be somewhere else. I wished I was in Canada where the, where the hunting was good. I wished I was in Florida where the fishing was good. And, uh, and uh, just what, I, I just wasn't really a good match for Illinois. And so um, when I went to college, I ended up going to Southern Illinois University, which actually is in the southern part of the state where they actually had some nature. And that's why I ended up there with a degree in wildlife biology. So I've always had this interest in in wildlife and and biology and things like that. Um, When I finished that degree, again, I wanted to go somewhere where where, where nature was real, and so I ended up in the state of Washington now uh, doing a master's degree at Western Washington University where I uh, ended up on the, uh, the Olympic Peninsula studying plant communities out there. And then uh, I guess I, uh, I just got in the graduate school trap, and, uh, and then I ended up going to Duke University for my Ph.D., and uh, I was really very lucky when I went there because— um, I got uh, I got hired on one of the first big research projects looking at this issue of climate change, and in particular, how uh, climate change would affect carbon balance of Arctic and subarctic ecosystems. So I got my dream fulfilled. I ended up four years going back and forth between North Carolina and Alaska, and uh, it was just a uh, it was just a great experience there. And and in that department at Duke, they also do a lot of work with sea change and the coastal environment. Right. And then you ended up at, I would say, with your interest, a dream job at Coastal Carolina. Uh, That's right. (laughs) Eventually, I know you're going to have the question, well, how did you end up writing a history book? And uh, I'll uh, I'll go all the way back to the the work that that I did at at Duke uh, when I was working in Alaska. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with peat bogs, but uh, we did a lot of work in peat bogs. And uh, a peat bog is a wonderful historical record of ecology because uh, you can drill down in the peat and you can bring the the remains of that peat back into the laboratory. You can identify the plant remains and you can get a picture of, of how that site has changed through time. And that's really where I, where I sort of developed my, uh, my sort of roots as a historical ecologist there because uh, I uh, really became infatuated with the uh, uh, historical ecology of these peat bogs and how you could use that record of plant remains to sort of piece together plant communities and also the, the climate that used to occur in those areas. All right. When you talk about drilling down, is this like take, you taking a core sample? Is that... Absolutely. We, uh, we went, on the, uh, went to the Arctic tundra. We took frozen cores out of the tundra. And uh, when we were in the central part of Alaska, we'd literally just dig down and, uh, and take samples of the peat that way. The most interesting thing about that work, that work was done in about the 1980s, 
And uh, that was when we people were just first talking about climate change and global warming. It was really one of the really the first big research projects that have been done. I, I'm always amazed at how this subject has sort of taken prominence, and 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 that's all we hear about nowadays. It's uh, it 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 really is quite amazing to see how the issue has grown, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. All right. And so you're at Coastal Carolina and you have done a book which is part history. You go back to the land before it was occupied and then with what the indigenous folks did. And then, of course, European settlers coming in and and how things changed and what our state agencies are doing with and it's as well as private uh, foundations with preserving or conserving the, the natural landscape of the coast. So the impetus for the book was a single fact, and I had read this um, in some reports that were put out by the state of South Carolina. The estimate is that about 30% of the coast of South Carolina is currently under some kind of protection. And when I say some kind of a protection, I mean it's either in a, a national forest, an, a state park, um, a conservation easement, a national wildlife refuge. And uh, that number just by itself is not so interesting until, of course, you compare it to other states. It's a huge number as far as a percentage of land that's currently under protection. Um, I have a lot of friends in the Marine Science Department at Coastal, and uh, they've studied coastal ecosystems up north. And, of course, they always laugh. All of those coastal ecosystems up there are, are currently under concrete because they were destroyed many, many, many years ago. The unique thing about the coast of South Carolina is we didn't lose those systems the second unique thing is there was a process, a historical process in place that got a lot of those ecosystems under some kind of a protection. And that's what I hope the book conveys is the process that led to that. Jim, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with Professor James Lucan about his book, Coastal South Carolina Fish and Game. Let's let's start at the, at the beginning and talk about the interaction of the indigenous people, the Native Americans, with the landscape. There are a lot of myths out there, but for example, control burning, hunting practices, that kind of thing. Absolutely. That is one of the, the big things that, that we assume about Native Americans is they used fire a lot. And indeed, I talk about that somewhat in the book about how they use fire to clear land for agriculture and hunting and things like that. One of the most frustrating things about doing this book, since I'm a biologist and I like numbers, all right? So, and, and in the book, I, I do manage to get some numbers for some things that happened historically, but one of the things that's really difficult to get a handle on as far as the early Native Americans were, were simple things like how many of them were there? Where were they located? How, what sort of an impact did they have on the ecosystems? And, and I'm telling you, Walter, it was, it was, it was just really frustrating. I, could, I couldn't find anything like that and finally came to the conclusion the information just really didn't exist. Probably the best sort of information like that was, of course, associated with the uh, the deerskin trade, and that, of course, was because you know they kept records of of deerskins that were shipped from various ports. But as far as other things were concerned, very difficult to uh, to find numerical information about impact on the land. But I will say that you know the 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 one thing about Native Americans that's really changed through the years is um, there was initially this idea that Native Americans didn't have impacts. Well, you know, current research on that is indicating that they did have wide-ranging impacts in terms of their agriculture and their hunting and the way they modified the landscape. Okay, because I was going to say the story that I grew up in, you know when we did what little bit was done about Native Americans in grammar school is they were at one with nature. They loved nature. <laughs> Absolutely. They, 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 <laughs> they were part of the landscape. They didn't do anything to change it. Mm -hmm. But what if you mentioned agriculture or, and the use of fire, particularly for hunting, right? Right. 
Right. I cite some some scientific studies. Uh, one one was really uh, really caught my attention. Um, it wasn't done in South Carolina, but it was done somewhere else where they uh, where they showed that as a result of uh, Native American agriculture, they were actually able to measure increased sediment erosion into uh, into river bottoms as a result of that. So that indicates that. There were some really strong environmental impacts in terms of, of Native Americans living on the land. You mentioned the deerskin trade. They were already involved with, but it really ballooned when yep. you, you get the Europeans and the, and the demand for that. During the colonial period, the tens of thousands, and I, you've got a figure, I think at one point there were eighty or 90,000 deerskins Absolutely. Yep. leaving the port of Charleston annually before the American Revolution. So it's no wonder that by the end of the 19th century, the deer population in South Carolina almost didn't exist. That's right. And and the number you just gave there, of course, is what we'd call the official count. You can imagine how much unofficial, you know, commerce in deer skins was probably happening also. Well, and there was a byproduct of this because people were interested in just the skins is that the carcasses were left in the woods, and that had an impact on the landscape as well. Absolutely, and yeah, that, and that was uh, that was one of the, uh, the resolutions or acts that was actually passed just for that reason, right there. It's hard, it's hard to imagine in these times where they quickly went to a commodity just to sell the skin, and nobody needed the meat. You know, it was, that tells you how much uh, value there was associated with those skins. Of course, this would this would happen later in American history on the Great Plains with the buffalo. Right. Absolutely. So from the beginning, even in the colonial period, Europeans did begin to pass conservation legislation of a kind, right? Of a kind, absolutely. And it was usually associated with some sort of commerce. So as I point out in the book, you know, one of the really first environmental regulations that was passed was in 1726, and it had to do with the practice of obstructing streams. And, and apparently what was going on was people were cutting trees and either damming them up, maybe to make mill ponds. It, it wasn't exactly clear, but it, it was enough of a problem they had to ban the practice. And of course, there was this um, tension between probably people trying to dam up streams, but there was also this highly valuable migratory fish trade, in particular shad and sturgeon, that were being harmed as a result of this. And so um, you had this sort of tension between, uh, and and I think the damming primarily occurred in the upstate where they had a lot of mill ponds and, and tried to use water power for various and sundry things. You had these uh, these efforts to try and regulate the obstruction of waterways, and of course, the waterways had to be kept open just for for trade and and movement of goods and things like that. So that was one of the first first laws that was passed. Going along with this was one that I never totally quite figured out. At the same time, they banned the obstruction of streams. They banned fish poisoning. Fish poisoning was um, was one of these practices. Native Americans had practiced it in the, um, you know, farther inland where they could sort of dam up a stream and they threw various plants in the water to make to stun the fish so they can catch them easily. I never could really determine just exactly what fish poisoning they were trying to regulate, um, but it clearly was a problem and they thought it serious enough they were they were going to try to regulate. And that was in 1726. One thing that they did regulate, but they permitted that really changed uh, the nature of the low country landscape were the construction of cuts or many canals between rivers and creeks and what have you. And one of the reasons they regulated it because the tidal flow was very important for the production of rice, and sometimes somebody making a cut between one creek (laughs) and another could foul up the tidal (laughs) flow into a person's rice fields. Absolutely. Right. And so, uh, and so just uh, with that same, with, along that same line, the obstruction of and maintaining open waterways seemed to be one of the, the, 
the first sort of places where government would try to get in and regulate the environment in some way or another. And, and I think that's because of, of commerce, because of fish, and because of the, uh, I think, probably trying to put in hydropower. Environment. There was a tension there among all these different sorts of, uh, of potential uses. Another early piece of conservation legislation was the banning of the hunting of deer at night by fire. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that one we know why they did that. Um, I read some uh, read some stories about this. The uh, night hunting with fire was not done so much to protect deer. It it ended up for protecting the people who were doing it because the, what they would do was they go in the woods at night with fire, they drive the deer toward a central place, and then they would get out their guns and start shooting. Well, you can imagine at night what happened as they started shooting, not only did they shoot deer, they shot each other. <laughs> and uh, so they had to pass some laws to regulate that. They also, um, at that same time, there was a lot of free-range cattle the cattle were also uh, being harmed as a result of this. So the the night hunting with fire, I think, probably was to protect the deer, but it was also to protect the people who were participating in this. And also, during the Revolution, when they were looking for bodies to fill the state's quota for volunteers, if you had been convicted of hunting deer by fire at night, you basically got drafted into uh, the local militia to fight the Revolution. Even, you didn't volunteer. That was just, uh, <laughs> and that that would make sense because uh, 1769 was when they started banning the the night hunting, and that would that would be about right. Yeah. Earlier, you had talked about the difficulty of finding the number of Native Americans. By the time there was European settlement, now yes, the Spaniards were here first. I know that 1526, and they actually left pretty good records. But depending upon the source, there's an estimate there were. 45 or 46 individual Native American nations or tribes. Most of them just extended families. But by the time the English were writing this, these names down in the 1670s and 80s, all they basically had in some cases was the name. Those peoples had disappeared yep. from the landscape. Absolutely. And, and that was... Again, another frustration trying to write this book because, and I eventually came to the following conclusion about why the information was so sketchy. Time and time again, I'd read that um, such and such new Native Americans were here, but when they finally went there, no one was left. And, and of course, the, the explanation is uh, the disease that was brought by the Europeans probably killed a lot of them out. Um, they were forced off their lands for various reasons. Uh, they just weren't there anymore. And I and I got the, the sense after reading many things that very quickly many of these tribes just vanished and, and records just records just weren't kept as far as that is concerned. Well and as the smaller coastal groups families got smaller because of being pushed out or disease, many of those became a part of the Catawba Nation. The Catawba Nation absorbed uh, smaller tribes from the coast as they moved inland to get away from the settlements. Right. Yep. So let's talk about more about the fish and the game part. You, you mentioned shad and sturgeon. So let's just start with the, have a fish tales to, go, <laughs> to start with. Absolutely. So much, much of what I based this book on was the historical record of acts and resolutions passed by the the state of South Carolina, which which when I look back on it was a really good sort of historical record of, of events and things and you could you could try to piece together what was going on. So if we separate fish from wildlife, clearly Regulation was set in motion first as far as fish are concerned, and uh, that sort of began in the in 1870. Um, and the reason for that is very clear. There were two very important migratory fish, as you mentioned earlier, shad and sturgeon. And uh, those fish would migrate up many of the major coastal rivers, the Waccamaw in particular was a big one, but many of the other ones also. And what was set in motion was this problem between 
people living at the coast and people living farther inland. Because what started to happen was fishermen at the coast started to shortstop the migrating fish. Um, sturgeon in particular and shad, they would stretch these nets entirely across the rivers. They would catch as many of them as they could. And of course, what happened was uh, many of the fish that used to migrate farther upstream were, were now not available to the people living farther upstate. And, and, and so there was this call to try to regulate the fishing that was going on at the coast. And so that's when you start to see some of the first attempts, as I said, in the late 1800s to uh, regulate the seasons when people could catch fish at the coast, how long they can do it, and some of the methods that they were using. The problem, of course, in the late 1800s was they passed a, a lot of laws. Enforcement was almost non-existent. So we had a lot of lot of laws on the books, but very little enforcement. We, so we didn't have game wardens in those days? Um, or fish wardens? Fish wardens, 1878, the first ones. However, they weren't very numerous. <laughs> they had almost no funds. In many instances, a lot of the regulation occurred from Columbia. And so for all intents and purposes, many of these laws that were passed were not enforced. And so um, we had to wait until later before we actually got a warden force in place, before we actually started getting um, good enforcement of some of these things. In that time frame, um, late 1800s, something else started to happen also. And uh, you may have heard of the, uh, the plume trade. Um, this, is, uh, this is, of course, when uh, feathers of birds like egrets and other sorts of birds became valuable because women in New York wanted to wear them in hats and, and other sorts of things. And so the plume trade at that particular point in time was set in motion. And what that basically meant in South Carolina was a lot of people going into the field and shooting birds just so they could harvest their so, feathers. So, or primarily egrets, but that include herons? Absolutely. And, yep, yep. Okay. And duck, duck feathers, not so much. <laughs> um, the ducks were another issue. Okay. And and ducks, bobolinks, terrapins, the shad, the sturgeon, the roe from the sturgeon, all of that shipped north. Right? And so you had this tremendous market hunting going on to export uh, these wild game products from South Carolina, either to the population centers like Charleston and Savannah, or usually uh, north. And so... We have, we have this, this great sort of whirlwind of wildlife use happening after the Civil War in the late 1800s. We have sturgeon fishermen stretching nets across the mouths of the coastal rivers, catching shad and sturgeon. We have plume hunters. We have market hunters literally killing thousands of ducks and shipping them for their meat to places. And not surprisingly, um, and I know you had my good friend John Navin on here, and I think his book dealt with, with grim issues in the history of South Carolina. As far as wildlife was concerned, the late 1800s in South Carolina was grim. I, I, I was able to, of course, stick some numbers on some of these things because the federal government started to track some of these fish. And if you look at those graphs, you, you'll see over and over again, 1900 was the low point for everything. Okay, every every animal, every fish that was being trapped, hunted, or sold, the population was at its lowest point in 1900. And that that, that is when the deer population was, they almost disappeared. That's right. This photograph isn't in your book, but there is a photograph that was taken in Columbia in the late 1920s before the dams, Santee Cooper and the lakes. And there was a sturgeon on a boatboard wagon. Nose was on, under the seat 
and the sturgeon stretched all the way, and the tail <laughs> was on the ground. It was it was a huge monster of a right. of a fish. They don't grow that large anymore, right? Well, yeah, that's a uh, yeah, that's a real problem. I mean, they they were almost driven to extinction. And uh, there's actually a, a fellow in our biology department named Derek Crane. He's studying sturgeon now in the uh, Waccamaw River. And if you look at the graph in the book, I mean, they were driven down, and they never ever recovered to what they used to be. Um, in the, in the city of Georgetown, to, to show you just how intense this sturgeon fishery, fishery was, um, the mayor of Georgetown passed a law banning the butchering of sturgeon near town because the uh, the they they butchered them for the meat and for the roe, but you know they threw the carcasses off to the side, and apparently there were so many dead sturgeon carcasses that had been thrown out around Georgetown. It created this horrible environmental problem, so they had to ban the butchering of sturgeon near the town of Georgetown. How large would the sturgeon have been in those days? I mean, normally. Oh, they they have pictures of them hauling them up. You know, six, seven, eight feet. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that monster that that was caught near Columbia was not so outrageous. No, it was not. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Jim, what? Are, where are the sturgeon populations today? Sturgeon are still found in those original rivers. The populations are very low. Um, the The ones that are there are very small. You can still be in a boat in the Waccamaw River and occasionally see a small sturgeon that'll surface, but the populations are down to very low levels and and they're trying to understand you know what is what what can be done to actually bring those populations back but uh, I don't know if that will ever happen what about shad? Shad are still there also. There's still some very minimal shad fishing that goes on, but nothing even vaguely close to what the uh, what the catch of shad used to be. Let me pick up at 1900 because it's a, it's really an important part of the book. Okay. Um, in 1900, uh, about 10 years before that, we, uh, we saw the formation of the federal government's biological survey. And the biological survey started, uh, you know, looking at a variety of things uh, as a result of population crashes of fish and wildlife. Um, and in 1900, we see the first federal legislation to try to address this, and that was called the Lacey Act. Um, the Lacey Act was this attempt to regulate this market hunting of animals and birds and, and the selling of them illegally. 1900, I think we can say, was, was, was a low point as far as fish and wildlife was concerned, but it was also the beginning of something really big and uh, what the it, the beginning was essentially when south carolina starts to get serious about regulating market hunting regulating um, sport hunting and, and and that's when we see the uh, the beginnings of game wardens and uh, the entire uh, fish and wildlife resources uh, department at the state of south carolina okay and some of the early game wardens, but with particularly concerning fowl, was part of the Audubon Society. Absolutely, and uh, this was this this. If I ever do another book, I'm probably going to try to pick this up and uh, and and run with this. Uh, many people don't know this. So, 1905, we had this really bad situation with regard to birds, fish, and wildlife, and the general public had had really. They'd had enough. I mean, you know, there was a, there was a conservation movement that was uh, that was growing. Um, the Audubon Society had formed primarily primarily in the north to stop women from wearing these hats with the plumes. At that particular point in time, state of South Carolina had to do something. But I get the impression they didn't really want to do something about regulating fish and hunting. And so, um, what they ended up doing was uh, something that had happened in North Carolina first is um, they basically said, look, the Audubon Society seems to have a lot of credibility. They've mounted a campaign to protect birds. They pretty much have had some success in stopping this illegal bird hunting for plumes. Let's just turn 
all the fish and game regulation over to the Audubon Society, which, which when you think about it, was a really bizarre sort of thing to happen in state government. Um, I sort of get the impression state government didn't want to mess with it, and they said, well, let's just turn it over to those Audubon people and let them have it. What occurred was, uh, was, was really kind of complicated. Audubon Society was allowed to recommend the first chief game warden in the state of South Carolina. I think this was about 1905. And it ended up being a, a fellow by the name of uh, James Henry Rice. James Henry Rice was, a, was an avid birder. And just between you and me, when you read about the guy, you could you get the sense the only thing he cared about was saving birds. All right? So he was put in charge of the enforcement of all game and fish regulations in the state of South Carolina. Um, he set about doing his work. He ran into political problems. Um, he, he got crosswise with Governor Bleece. Um, some, some things, you know, that we're, we're familiar with now actually happened back then. And he only lasted about, um, about two or three years in the job before he, he resigned and went back to the field protecting birds in the field. All right, well, let's think about it. At the turn of the century, there were birds that were once ubiquitous in South Carolina, like the bobolink, yep. the rice bird. Yep. Uh, of course, the Carolina parakeet had already disappeared, but the passenger pigeon was on the way out yes. as, yep. as, as well. So uh, people were aware that, yes, things were, ch- were changing, and particularly the, the bobolink, which was associated with the rice fields. And the other thing that, that, I, that I really hope to bring out in the book was, of course, how did this conservation movement start? Well, another thing that sort of began to take hold at that same point in time was, was, the, uh, was sort of the birth of what I'm just going to call sport hunting. And I know it's hard to understand this, but, you know, prior to maybe um, the Civil War, there were very few people who were involved in what we call sport sport hunting. They hunted to put food on the table. Okay, that's why they hunted. And so after the Civil War, we start to see some of these um, these men start to uh, talk about sport hunting. And I, and I devote almost an entire chapter to Elliot, who wrote a book about sport and sport hunting. And he owned a plantation. And, uh, you know, he was talking about things of like, you know, how the landscape had changed and the the game that he used to hunt was no longer as plentiful, and, and here's what needed to be done. You need to keep the cattle out of the woods because the cattle were having negative effects. And so sort of going hand in hand with this was the emergence of sport hunting, but also this idea of conservation. And so you had this, had this conservation movement starting to take hold, but in South Carolina, you know, a big part of this was the sport hunting emergence and, and, and the sport hunters realizing that they wouldn't have anything to, to shoot if they didn't start to do conservation. And, of course, you had the creation of very large hunting clubs, particularly owned by wealthy northerners, primarily for ducks along the Atlantic Flyway. But then all of a sudden you had thousands of acres that were part of this club <laughs> where the locals weren't allowed to just come in and hunt anymore. That's right. That's right. And uh, to get some sense of uh, the situation prior to 1905 when, when they named Audubon, the, the Audubon Society and James Henry Rice to, to enforce these regulations, a lot of people sort of began to take this in their own hands. The Palmetto Gun Club started offering rewards for people who were hunting out of season. And so some of these gun clubs recognized that the state wasn't doing its job in protecting wildlife, so they started to take matters in their own hands. Okay. After our first state game warden got crosswise, uh, <laughs> h- how did enforcement take off from there? What happened after that was uh, another person recommended by Audubon was, was named the chief game warden, and his name was Alfred Aldrich Richardson. He was almost, as best I can tell, the complete opposite of James Henry Rice. Right? James Henry Rice, all he cared about was birds. Richardson was, as best I can tell, a shrewd politician. He knew right from the get-go that most people in Columbia didn't want to enforce many of these laws. Um, And so he set about doing things that were really, really quite interesting. First off, he made it clear 
that the enforcement of fish and game and the game wardens that were going to be deployed were a no-cost venture. It was going to be funded entirely from licenses and fines. All right? So he told them, this is going to cost you nothing. This is going to be a self-supporting operation. The second thing, and he produced a report about every year, he would repeatedly say that half of the fines and licenses they collected would go to the local schools in the counties where they were collected. And so time and time again, you see this guy doing things that were really quite shrewd and and quite smart, and he was incredibly successful to grow the warden force. And you you look at his reports through time all the way up to the 1940s, every year more wardens, every year a bigger budget, every year, you know, doing more things. And he lasted a long time in that job. And uh, he did, uh, he he laid a a great foundation as far as the warden force in in the state of South Carolina is concerned. Jim, we need to pause a moment. And let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Jim Lucan of Coastal Carolina University about his book, Coastal South Carolina, Fish and Game. All right, Jim, the difference between salt and freshwater and how that has an impact on the landscape. Um, and you've got a wonderful sign, an illustration, and I've seen them before, fresh and saltwater dividing line. <laughs> it, of course, affects which kind of fishing license you were, you're going to get. But fish don't always know where the line is. And we know, for example, several years ago uh, when we had a drought that uh, the intrusion of saltwater up the rivers in the, the PD area uh, almost took Myrtle Beach's water supply offline. So South Carolina has had an interesting relationship over the centuries on the use of the tidal rivers in production of rice and other commodities. Absolutely. And let me, let me talk about one of the more complex issues about that right there. Ownership of tidelands. Um, Early on, of course, ownership of tidelands, the Charter of Carolina was explicit in terms of, you know, the king owning tidelands. Well, through time, um, a variety of things began to happen, primarily due to the harvesting of oysters. There was a time when many of the tidelands that supported oysters fell under private ownership, which caused some problems. And, and then what we see through time, of course, is the state of South Carolina clarifying and expanding its domain um, over tidelands. And in particular, not just you know, land that's underwater, but also up to the high tide mark, which created all sorts of very interesting legal problems later on, particularly when it came to impoundments. And as you know, we, we can talk about impoundments in greater detail, but uh, impoundments sort of shifted that water line out and, and put that land under private ownership, when in reality, of course, um, that land can or could fall under public ownership. And so through time, what we see, at least in the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, is this clarification of ownership, in particular, the state claiming ownership of fish, the state claiming ownership of wildlife, the state claiming ownership of tidelands, and all of it being held in what they called the public trust, which, of course, gave it the mandate to pass laws and to protect the public trust. And so you see that historically throughout the book uh, where, uh, where every now and then they, they would stake a claim and a little bit more primarily to put this in the public trust. To me, one of the more interesting illustrations you have, and I'm looking at page 132 of your book, the Department of Natural Resources, I guess, or it's maybe the federal, since it's Francis Marion National Forest, a dike and trunk, a rice trunk, which was made to regulate the flow of salt water and fresh water into the rice, to the rice fields, actually the fresh water, but to create um, a brackish marsh impound for wildlife. I mean, (laughs) I'm looking at the illustration and I've got a model sitting on my bookcase at home and this is what they were doing in the 18th century. 
so you've you you've gone right to the heart of it, Walter. So a huge part of this book that I hope comes across is the following. Um, of that 30% of land that's under protection at the coast of South Carolina, much of that is historical rice impoundment. And first off, you know, let's make very clear that the existence of those impoundments is historical. The construction of those impoundments, the clearing of the swamps, the building of the canals, the building of the dikes was all done with slave labor. And and so we have to be absolutely clear that this this current very important aspect for fish and wildlife at the coast of South Carolina was the result of African-American slave labor way back in history. What we see through time is, first off, those areas were devoted to the growing of rice and producing commodities. And then, of course, as you mentioned, after the Civil War, Many of those rice plantations fell into disrepair because the slave labor wasn't there. And then, of course, we saw the second northern invasion uh, when the wealthy businessmen from up north came, bought these plantations. They then went and repaired the dikes. They repaired the water control structures. And they did this, again, not with slave labor, but usually with African-Americans, again, doing the hard labor. And... They basically did that for sport hunting. And then, and, and it really is interesting to sort of get a feel for just how big this was. I mean, some of these, uh, some of these people would buy up 30 or 40 of these old plantations, you know, and, and sort of gather them together and uh, use them as, a, as leisure recreational areas. Come back to this 30% area of the coast of South Carolina. Um, this this process went until about the 1940s, and then I get the sense that sport hunting, leisure plantations in South Carolina kind of just lost their luster. I, I maybe people got tired of this. I do know some things happened that didn't allow certain things that had happened in the past to continue. For example, the baiting of ducks. All right, that's where you put feed out for the ducks and the ducks come in giant swarms and you shoot them with some federal legislation that was passed to stop that. And so many of the things that created this great sport hunting um, for these new plantation owners ended. And then, of course, we're going to come full circle on this. What happened to those lands? Well, they ended up being purchased by the state. They ended up being purchased by the federal government. They ended up being put under protection at the coast of South Carolina. And so we see this interesting chain of ownership, all of it, of course, beginning with the labor of African-Americans to create these, 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 uh, these particular impoundments. Well, when we're talking about the protection uh, in terms of environmental concerns in the rivers, but a number of rivers in the low country begin somewhere else. And the state has aligned the coastal zone, right? Absolutely. Yep. In and, the counties, that's right. But the pollution can be put in the river, in the Edisto River at Orangeburg, and flow down, right? <laughs> right. That's right. So, so, <laughs> so protection of the rivers is kind of problematic. It is. And uh, the problem becomes more and more problematic the more people move to the coast, is, is what it boils down to. Well, and the more people take water out of the rivers upstream, right? That's right. I mean, the General Assembly has recently passed some regulations regarding that, have they not? We still regulate the coastal zone by counties. Um, DHEC would like to take a watershed approach, which means they would regulate, you know, water quality beyond those coastal counties, but I don't think that has happened yet. Okay. So... You, you mentioned DHEC. We've got two state agencies involved in the process. You've got DHEC and you've got natural resources. <laughs> yes. It was really quite fascinating to watch the, the emergence of this administrative structure in, uh, in state government as far as natural resources are concerned. Early on, because of oysters and because oysters were a food product, and there was oyster canneries. The regulation of oysters came 
under the purvey of the health department because, you know, it was a it was a health concern as far as, you know, canning these oysters and shipping them. And and that persists today in that DHEC is in charge of uh, of Tideland oysters and uh, and things like that. Um, Fish and Wildlife um, fell under a uh, department what eventually became the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. State parks, interestingly, began as an offshoot of the Forestry Commission and then eventually became their own separate entity. And so there was sort of this, uh, you know, administrative divisions that occurred. Um, and, if, and if you look at the book, um, again, I don't know how this happened, but there was this fellow in 1947. His name was Christian Larson. He was a, a faculty member at University of South Carolina. I don't know why he did this. I don't know who commissioned his work, but he wrote a really sweeping report about how the state of South Carolina administered and regulated its natural resources. And uh, he came up with a variety of, uh, of, of deficiencies, um, but also made some recommendations for how things could be improved. It was a really interesting report. I, I, I believe that he was in the political science department. He was, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And he was the father of one of my students, John Larson, who went into historic preservation at Old Salem for oh, 30 really? years. Oh, really? Okay. I so, didn't know that. I'd, I'd wondered what, what his deal was. Yeah. yeah. We've got a few minutes. Let's talk about the natural landscape. Venus flytraps are something is one of your specialties, right? That's correct. We talk about populations of fish and deer. We also talk about plant populations, do we not? Yes. And, uh, you know, the Venus flytrap is a is a perfect model case study for population growth and the problems that go with population growth at the coast. Uh, when I first moved to Horry County to get to Lewis Ocean Bay Heritage Preserve, which, by the way, is the last place in South Carolina where Venus flytrap still exists, you had to you had to work to get to Lewis Ocean Bay Heritage Preserve. There were no good roads in there. Now, of course along one edge of Lewis Ocean Bay Heritage Preserve, there's a four-lane highway. There's development all around the preserve. And of course, um, many people know that in order to manage Venus flytraps properly, you have to burn frequently. They require frequent burning. Well, fire and people don't mix. Um, fire creates smoke. Fires sometimes get out of control and burn houses down. So all around this preserve, housing subdivisions are springing up, and um, it really creates these management problems for some of these very unique plants that occur in, in some of our coastal regions. Lewis Ocean Bay is a place many people don't know this. People come from all over the world to go there just to see Venus flytraps and some of the other plants that are there. And it's literally being crowded out all around its edges due to population growth. You mentioned the, the control burning and historically, you read about Francis Marion and how he moves so quickly through the countryside, and people say, well, all of this undergrowth. Well, in the virgin forest, there was not a lot of undergrowth. Sometimes Native Americans had basically a controlled burning, and the mature uh, longleaf pines were not damaged That's by, correct, by yeah. the fire. Yeah. It was basically, and I've seen descriptions by English who were over here, English officers saying it was like a park. Right. They called it horse horse savanna, which uh, which, as you can imagine, was just an open grassy pasture and you could ride through it with no problems whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Looking to the future, Jim, uh, you're talking about the threat to this nature preserve. What about the future of our of our coast, which is everybody wants to live there? (laughs) Yep. And the number of people moving to the coast of South Carolina just keeps increasing all the time. Um, I think we have two issues that are important. Number one, as I mentioned in the book, there's very clear evidence that we've lost a lot of critical wetland at the coast of South Carolina. Wetlands are important ecosystem components for regulating flooding, 
for controlling nutrient flow, for providing all sorts of ecosystem services. And uh, we, we simply can't lose any more wetlands at the coast. We have to find ways to develop where we don't destroy wetlands. And then, of course, we have this very scary and uh, prominent issue of sea level rise. And uh, sea level will rise. Um, and, and of course, uh, the what goes hand in hand with sea level rise is the flooding that's associated with hurricanes and uh, high tides and things like that. And already we're seeing some of these problems play out not just in Horry County and Charleston and pretty much any coastal area. As the sea level continues to creep up, it's events like high tide events and hurricanes where you really see some of these large impacts. So we are going to have to deal with that. On a positive note, the 30% of land under protection is an incredibly positive thing. And some of that is not readily accessible, which is probably a good thing. But we really do have a unique situation on the coast of South Carolina with having all of that land under conservation protection. Well, well it is in things like the Ace Basin, for instance. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so there, there, are, there are incredible treasures. And uh, we take a lot of brick bats for various things in our state. But I think this conservation effort is something of which we can be very, very proud. I agree. Yep. All right. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, Jim. Any last words you'd like to have for our listeners before we sign off today? I think it's, uh, I think it's really important, again, as I mentioned earlier, to just recognize the role of African Americans in, in modifying the landscape the landscape that eventually became a part of this incredible conservation legacy in our state. Um, I think this is something that's that's unique, and we should be we should be touting it, and we should be interpreting it, we should be studying it, and uh, it it really is one of the great positive things of the state of South Carolina. Okay, all right. Jim Lucan, the author of Coastal South Carolina Fish and Game, History, Culture, and Conservation. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I really enjoyed the conversation with Jim Lucan about the interaction of humans and the landscape in South Carolina over thousands of years, not just hundreds of years. His book, Coastal South Carolina Fish and Game, History, Culture, and Conservation, is a wonderful resource. For example, understanding that in 1900, basically wildlife was almost gone from South Carolina. It took some time, but today, 30% of our coastal zone is under some kind of protection so that the landscape, the natural habitat, and the fish and game can be enjoyed by future South Carolinians. And that is a very important part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.